Hey guys, welcome. My name is Janae and I am the host of 760 True Crime Podcast. In the first episode, we will explore two local intertwined cases that I have never been able to forget because they happened in my hometown. We are going to backtrack to 2009 when I was 8 years old. I remember seeing missing person posters of Amber Dubois all over the news, in grocery stores, and every street corner. I even remember my mom went on a group search with the San Diego search and rescue team to find Amber in local areas, but every search came up with nothing. When this happened, it was a very scary time in our community. I remember all of the parents were holding their kids super tight. Even my mom wouldn't let me go outside alone. She wouldn't let me walk alone. And at the time, I thought she was just being overprotective and not letting me have fun. But now as an adult, I totally get it. The entire year went past and then in 2010, Chelsea King went missing. So since the community was still worried about Amber, when Chelsea went missing, we all thought that this was all too coincidental. When law enforcement began investigating Chelsea's disappearance, they would find that the same perpetrator murdered both girls. Before I begin, I want to give my sincerest condolences to Carrie Cave, formerly McGonagall, Dave Cave, Maurice Dubois, Brent and Kelly King, and all of Amber and Chelsea's family and friends. So, Amber Leanne Dubois had bright blue eyes and her hair was short and light brown. She loved to read and she had an enormous passion for animals. Amber's mom even said that she wrote in a journal one time, quote, When I grow up, I want to be a marine biologist because I want to work at SeaWorld. End quote. She was an introvert and she had a close circle of friends, which I can completely relate to because I love to be at home and I keep my circle small. So when Amber was in eighth grade, she was introduced to this agricultural class and they had a program called Future Farmers of America. This program basically gave students an opportunity to raise a farm animal and then once it's no longer a baby, I guess, it gets sent to the Del Mar Fair. And this fair, it's now called the San Diego County Fair, but back in 2009, it was the Del Mar Fair. She was so enthusiastic about this project, she knew she wanted to do it and she even named her lamb Nanette before she even got it. So this brings us to the rainy Friday morning of February 13th, 2009. Just before 7 a.m. that morning, Amber was eager to go to school because she was going to purchase her lamb for the agricultural class and this was the last day to turn in the money. Her stepdad, Dave, left the check on the kitchen counter and Amber waved by out the door. She was wearing a black hoodie, black pants, and black shoes. And it was also said that her backpack was filled with valentines she had made for all of her friends. And then she headed on her one-mile walk to Escondido High School. So Amber lived in a cul-de-sac on Fire Mountain Place, and this neighborhood is a pretty suburban neighborhood. It's like a typical family-friendly neighborhood where neighbors just know each other. I will insert a map of the location from her house to Escondido High School so you can get a better idea of how close she lived to the school. According to Google Maps, it is a 0.7 mile walk and it should take anywhere from 13 to 15 minutes. 
When Amber exits her neighborhood, she's put onto a busy street with a lot of people. It was reported that Escondido High School campus cameras caught her walking past the football field. One of Amber's friends was driving to school with her mom, and her mom had also carpooled with Amber before, so she was familiar with her. And they saw Amber walking to school, but they said they saw her talking to a boy, and at the time, they just didn't think anything of it, and they didn't want to intrude on that, so they kind of just kept going. But in total, there were over 500 eyewitness sightings of Amber that morning. So the exact times of this next part are a little bit unclear, but around 4.30 p.m., Dave said he returned from work and Amber wasn't home, so he called Escondido police to file a missing persons report. And then when Amber's mom got home, she was greeted by the police and they began asking her questions about what Amber was last wearing, who her friends were, and other things like that. There was a voicemail from Escondido High School stating that Amber never showed up that day, and I'm unclear of the exact time that this message was heard, but they definitely got it February 13th. So next, the officer went to Escondido High School and he confirmed with faculty and friends of hers that she never showed up to school and it was really unlike her. So law enforcement usually begin to look at the immediate family and friends closest to the victim when investigating missing person reports. The reason for this is because statistically, stranger abductions are not that common. As shocking as it is, it's more common that someone you know have something to do with the disappearance. So Amber's biological dad, he was in Los Angeles all day on February 13th, so he was automatically cleared as a suspect and they didn't look further into him. Same thing goes with Amber's mom. She was at work all day and they were able to confirm her alibi with her boss and coworkers. But allegedly, when it came to Dave, her stepdad, um, he never went to work that day. And also, he couldn't keep one straight story of what he did. It was all over the place and he kept saying he forgot things or would just mix up the times he said he did things. So I think that naturally, law enforcement became suspicious of Dave because he couldn't confirm his alibi. He was asked to take a polygraph exam, which yielded inconsistent results all three times he took it. I don't think that Dave was ever a person of interest or a suspect, but I did see reported that he was asked to take a polygraph exam. And although getting results like this can be alarming, you have to remember that this is a highly stressful tragedy that the family is going through, and this invokes all kinds of emotions. Also important to note that polygraph exams are not lie detector tests, so these results will give you a heartbeat and not a lie. So by summer, Amber was still missing, and remember her lamb Nanette that I was talking about? Well, that lamb was given to another student to raise, and according to the Baltimore Sun, these lambs usually sell for around $600 at the San Diego County Fair, but Nanette had over 40 bidders, which sold for $7,500, and they used this money to hire a private investigator. So, more time passed, and after interviews with registered sex offenders in the area and all of the search parties, law enforcement still had no leads, suspects, or idea of where Amber was. 
But the Dubois family never lost hope in searching for their daughter. According to the Los Angeles Times, they hired a yellow lab and short-haired German pointer from Virginia. These dogs, they led the same route that Amber would have gone to go to school, but they trailed 20 miles away to the Paula Indian Reservation. Now, from what I see reported, law enforcement didn't do anything with this lead. I'm not sure if it's because Amber's family sought out the dogs versus law enforcement using their own dogs, but also these dogs aren't typical tracking dogs, so I'm not sure if that's another factor to why they didn't do anything with it. So now, after an entire year had passed, Amber's family did a walkathon at Escondido High School to keep her name in the media and her story alive. But then, on February 25, 2010, Chelsea King went missing. Chelsea King also had bright blue eyes and blonde hair. She was a 17-year-old honor student and senior at Poway High School. She was also on the school's cross-country team, and she was said to be really popular, and she had this go-big-or-go-home mentality. On February 25th, she went to Rancho Bernardo Community Park for a run. This park is surrounded by a lot of different connecting trails. In the trails, there's Lake Hodges, so it's a really pretty scenic place to go walk or run. I will insert a picture of the map of Lake Hodges and the park so you can get an idea of where Chelsea went to go run. When she didn't return home, her parents automatically knew something was wrong because Chelsea was a responsible girl and she wasn't the type of person to not say anything to her parents. Her dad, Brent, he went to go look for her at Rancho Bernardo Park because he knew she always ran there. And when he got there, he found her car and inside of her car was her iPod, her cell phone, and a couple other personal belongings. Once the people in the surrounding neighborhood heard that there was a missing girl, they even got out and went searching for her. And then the next day, while someone was walking their dog, they came across socks and underwear. Once the police collected these items, they brought them to the Kings and they confirmed that they were Chelsea's. And then after a day of rain, more personal items of Chelsea washed up in Lake Hodges, a shoe and a sports bra, and these were near where the socks and the underwear were found. With these new discoveries, law enforcement began to think that Chelsea might have been attacked, so they decided to look at any reports from that park in the past couple years to see if there have been any criminal activity going on. And that's when they came across a report of a woman being attacked in the same park a few months before Chelsea had gone missing. December 27, 2009, Candace Moncayo was on a run in Rancho Bernardo Park when she reported that she was attacked. She was running and she said she saw this man and she said a friendly hello and kept going on her way when out of nowhere he came back and tackled her to the ground. Once she was on the ground, she was able to get one arm free and she elbowed him in the nose. This caught him off guard, so he kind of got up and she took that chance to run away. Candace later reported that she could hear the cartilage in his nose crunch when she hit him. Allegedly, when she reported this with law enforcement, they took a sample of the DNA from her elbow, but I couldn't verify if that was true or not. 
but I saw it stated, so I wanted to include that. Three days after Chelsea went missing on a Sunday, February 28th, the Kings were on a tour with Sergeant Brown near Lake Hodges to get a better idea of where Chelsea was when she was running and where her personal items were found. As quick as this tour started is as quick as it ended because Sergeant Brown got a call from detectives saying that they had a DNA match from the underwear. Sergeant Brown immediately told the Kings that he had to go and that he might have a break in the case. So the results from the underwear found Chelsea's DNA as well as the semen of John Albert Gardner III. John Gardner was on the sex offender registry list for molesting a 13-year-old girl. In September 2000, he was sentenced to six years for raping his 13-year-old neighbor. He always denied raping her, but I guess that he later admitted to attacking her. He started his prison sentence at Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego shortly after he was reevaluated and sent to California Correctional Institution in Tehachapi until 2004. From 2004 to September 2005, he was at Avenal State Prison, which is where he was released from. In 2006, he was released and put on parole after serving five out of the six-year sentence. And then during his time on parole, he was forced to wear an ankle monitor under Jessica's law. So Jessica's law prohibits sex offenders from living near school zones or daycares, and it also increases penalties for sex offenders. But John Gardner found a loophole to this by registering his grandmother's address, which is nowhere near a school, and staying at his mom's, which was near a daycare. By 2008, his parole ended with over seven violations. These violations include his presence near schools, daycares, and prisons, access to a storage unit, and being out 158 times past his set curfew. Now my question is, why was he even given an ankle monitor if law enforcement weren't even bothered to check where he was or what he was doing? Why didn't they monitor his movements? Why did they not put him back in jail for violating his terms of parole? And why did they just treat him like he would not re-offend? Not much is known about Gardner's father, but allegedly he was an abusive alcoholic and his mother, Kathy Osborne, was a psychiatric nurse and she always stood by her son's side and always advocated for him. In my opinion, a psychiatric nurse should be able to understand better the signs that an individual is troubled, but that's just me. So immediately after they discovered the criminal history of John Gardner, Sergeant Brown needed to find Candace Moncayo, the girl who was attacked back in December. He needed Candace to identify if Gardner was her attacker before his face was all over the media. Once in contact, Candace was shown six different photos and she pointed to the one of John Gardner identifying him as her attacker. So this brings us to March 2nd, 2010, five days after Chelsea was first reported missing. Dive teams were searching in Lake Hodges when they saw hair sticking out of the water. And this was when they recovered the remains of Chelsea King in a shallow grave. John Gardner was arrested the same day that they could link his DNA to Chelsea 
at Hernandez Hideaway restaurant and bar near Lake Hodges in Escondido. It was also reported that he was drunk and wearing wet and muddy clothes during his arrest. It's assumed that he was in the water trying to move Chelsea's body, but I think he told law enforcement that he tripped and fell going to the restaurant. So by March 3rd, he was formally charged with the murder of Chelsea King and the attempted rape of Candace Moncayo. Also, when Gardner was arrested, the public was outraged. They went to his mom's house and wrote in red paint, quote, Chelsea's blood is on your hands, end quote. According to the Korea Herald, John Gardner is a father to twins. Now, I can't find any information on this besides in that article, so I don't know if it's true or if they're in witness protection or what the deal with that is, but it's really interesting to think or to know, I guess, that he might have children. This next information I found on a YouTube documentary called Taken Too Soon by FilmRise True Crime. So on March 5th, 2010, Sergeant Brown got a call from the district attorney saying to pick up John Gardner. He will take you to a body and then bring him back to jail. The deal was that if John Gardner showed law enforcement where Amber Dubois' body was, they wouldn't be able to use that evidence against him during court. So Gardner took Sergeant Brown all the way to Paula Indian Reservation. And when they were walking, they finally saw dig marks. And that is when they recovered the remains of Amber Dubois. Now remember when I said that Amber's family hired these dogs to go look for Amber and they went in Paula Indian Reservation? Imagine if law enforcement took that tip more seriously, they might have been able to find Amber way earlier and spared this family all of this heartache. So now they kind of ran into an issue with trying to charge John Gardner to Amber Dubois' murder because the deal specified that they could not use the information that Gardner showed them where the body was in court. They had no physical evidence to tie him to the murder. The only evidence that they had that linked Amber to John was the fact that he showed them where her remains were. So as a result, they sought out another deal, and the deal was where if he admitted to the murder of Amber Dubois, they would not seek the death penalty. Which I think is kind of dumb because California is a death penalty state and it's still in our law, but we have not executed people in years. So the district attorney notified the kings of the deal and they also agreed that this would be the best chance to give both girls justice. In Gardner's guilty plea, count one, he confessed to attacking Chelsea while she was running. He said he dragged her to a remote area of Lake Hodges and began to rape and strangle her to death, then he buried her in a shallow grave. On count two, he confessed to attacking and attempting to rape Candace Moncayo. And lastly, on count three, he admitted to forcing Amber Dubois into his car, taking her to a secluded location near Paula Indian Reservation, raping her, stabbing her to death, and then burying her body. According to CBS 8, on April 29th, 2010, Gardner gave a phone interview. I will quote some of what he had to say. 
in this interview and I will also leave it in the description so you can hear it in his own words. Gardner said, quote, I mean, I was aware of what I was doing and I could not stop myself. I was in a major rage and pissed off. Pissed off at my whole life and everybody that's hurt me and blew up and I hurt the wrong people, end quote. Quote, I hate myself. I really do. There's no taking back what I did. And if I could, yes, I would. Are you kidding me? But I was out of control. If I was able to stop myself in the middle of it, I would have. But I could not. I was out of control. End quote. And then when asked if he stalked his victims, he said, quote, It wasn't about their age with me. I actually didn't go out looking for them. I did not sit and wait for them. I go to calm myself. I go out for walks or a drive just to calm down, end quote. And the most chilling and disgusting part of his interview was when he stated, quote, if there was a bus schedule still, would Amber still be here? Yeah, she would have, end quote. During the sentencing trial, Carrie McGonigal, Maurice Dubois, Brent King, Kelly King, and Candace Moncayo each were allowed to give their own victim impact statements. Amber's mom, Carrie, was relatively calm during her statement and she focused it on Amber. Maurice Dubois wished Gardner to burn in hell and I completely agree with him. Brent King described Gardner as an animal and a monster, also agreeable. And then when Kelly King spoke directly to Gardner demanding him to look at her in the face, he refused and he drooped his head like a coward. And when Candace Moncayo was about to end her statement, she asked Gardner how his nose was doing, and this enraged him. Gardner immediately looked up with a vividly red face, his jaw was clenched, his lips pursed together, and even his chin was tense. And this photo, and there's also a video of him giving this reaction, is one of the most terrifying things to see. So, John Gardner was charged with first-degree murder with special circumstances and sentenced to two life sentences without the possibility of parole for the murders of Amber Dubois and Chelsea King, and one term of 25 years to life imprisonment for the assault and attempted rape of Candace Moncayo, and an additional 24 years of imprisonment. By June 2010, Gardner began his life sentence at California State Prison, Corcoran. This has nothing to do with the case, but I thought it was interesting. This is the same prison that the cult leader Charles Manson was at before he died in 2017. So, Caitlin Rother wrote a book called Lost Girls about this whole case. And mostly it was from the Gardner family perspective. Allegedly, Gardner got a copy of this book and he signed it and apologized to the families. But it was said that this book ended up being in some kind of San Diego auction and it sold for $250. And I know this enraged the family and it's really sick and gross that someone would want a signed copy of a book about a killer. According to Caitlin Rother, she was unable to get any official mental health documents even when she had signed permission from Gardner stating that he allows her to have these documents. And because of that, I think that either A, 
it never happened and he never spoke to a psychiatrist or b he did speak to a psychiatrist and they did say that he was unsafe but now that he offended again they didn't want that information out in the public because it would make them look really bad but none of that is fact and that's just my opinion if you want more information on gardner's childhood or the perspective from his mom i suggest reading the book because she goes more into that but for now this is going to be mainly about amber and chelsea as soon as trials were over, the Kings began to work with lawmakers in California to pass Chelsea's Law and to create Chelsea's Light Foundation. Chelsea's Law increases penalties, parole provisions, and oversight for first-time sex offenders who commit the most heinous crimes against children. Additionally, according to 10 News, Chelsea's Law was established in four other states. The Chelsea's Light Foundation started an annual 5K run called Finish Chelsea's Run, and originally it was in Lake Hodges, but since it got so popular, they had to move to a larger location in Balboa Park in San Diego. And according to the San Diego Union Tribune, after eight years of the annual Finish Chelsea's Run 5K Marathon, they had raised over $1 million for the Sunflower Scholarship, which was named after Chelsea's favorite flower. Amber's mom, Carrie, established Team Amber, a search and rescue team, and Team Amber actually recently aided in a search for a missing nursing student in Northern California when one of the Team Amber search dogs came across her remains, bringing closure to another family. Although through tragedy, these families have found ways to give back to their community and aid in similar situations that their daughters went through. So with all that being said, what are your thoughts? Thank you for listening to the first episode of 760 True Crime Podcast. Until next time.